essentially all one. One world, one people, and we owe a one collective responsibility to the only planet we can inhabit, and that's Earth. In South African traditional culture, Ubuntu is a term which is used to mean I am because we are, or humanity towards others. Whereas traditionally, others has always meant other people, we're moving into a future where other means the planets, the environment, animals, and humans. And although microscopic, we need to consider microbes in this discussion as well. Welcome to another episode of Microbe Mail. I'm your host, Vindana Chibabai, and today we're talking about the concept of One Health. My guest today is Dr. Yogendri Ramsamy, who is a clinical microbiologist at JDJ Laboratories, and she's also an honorary research fellow of the Antimicrobial Research Unit at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Her interests are in antimicrobial resistance and One Health. Now, you know that Yogendri is no stranger to Microbe Mail because she featured on the show in episode four, Is This Culture a Contaminant? So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go ahead and step into that when you're finished listening to this this one. So hi, again, and welcome back to Microbe Mail. Hi, Vin, and, and thank you for calling me back. Hi to all the listeners, and uh, it's an absolute pleasure to be on this show today. And I hope that the listeners do enjoy the topic that we will be engaging on. Well, you were a hit in the first time around, so of course I had to call you back. <laughs> so a couple of quick updates before we head into the episode content. Remember to sign up for updates on the Mail website. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And remember to share Mail with anyone who you think might enjoy the podcast. So again, are you ready to head into it? Ready as can be. So obviously, we've got to start with what is this one health concept and when, in fact, it was first identified. So can you talk us through that? Okay, so when historically, and you know, amazingly, it was actually a veterinarian that actually came up with the concept of one medicine. And this was basically described in one of the veterinary textbooks way back in 1964, where he said that there were similarities between animal and human medicine. And he stressed the the importance of the collaboration between them. So this was by Calvin Schwab. And then in February 2012, the first One Health Summit was held in, in Davos in Switzerland. And the summit presented the One Health concept as a way to manage health threats, focusing on food safety and security. So that's basically the origins of the whole One Health concept as we speak. So it's not new. I mean, it's at least about 60, 70 years old, but it seems like it took us 50 years from the initial description of it to get the world together to to talk about it. Exactly. And when the thing is with regards to the whole concept itself it was it's interesting that a veterinarian actually came up mm. with with the concept you know and now looking down on it we always think of focus on health being something from the human side predominantly but this concept came actually from the side of animals recognizing that there was this need for collaboration between sectors yeah absolutely very interesting so can you tell us then what we think the need for a One Health approach is? And I, I shouldn't say to human health, I should say a general One Health approach to all health-related matters. 
So when, when we look at the One Health approach, it's basically an integrated unifying approach to balance and optimize the health of people, animals, and the environment collectively. It is particularly important to prevent, predict, detect, and respond to global health threats, such as COVID-19. I mean, that was the best example we could get. The approach mobilizes multiple sectors, disciplines, and communities at various levels of society to bring them together and to work and develop long-term goals and identify root causes of diseases and then try to find solutions in them collaboratively. And you're talking about the collaborators. So who, so who are these collaborators that are supposed to make this approach work? So when go, go and, you know, for instance, we'll, you know, perhaps look at One Health, we'll go on to Google and then try to find out, you know, how do we approach One Health? The, the, the collaborators essentially were outlined by the WHO. So the WHO formed a One Health initiative to integrate the work between human, animal, and environmental health sectors. And this composed of the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, which was the FAO, the United Nations Environment Program, which is UNEP, and the World Organization for Health for Animal Health, which is WHO. And this actually now is given a term, and the term is the One Health Quadripartite. So this One Health Quadripartite is promoting a multi-sectorial approaches to reduce health threats at the human, animal, and ecosystem interface, and the transformations required to prevent and mitigate the impact of current and future health challenges. So essentially, when it's this quadripartite now that will dictate on how the how we approach diseases and concepts and threats in a one health perspective or from a one health perspective. And we assume that they are kind of guidelines being written by this group? Precisely. To help globally. Yeah. So and, and then just to add with the guidelines itself. So yes, they do have the independent functions and they do outline guidelines that pertain to their sector. But when it comes to like AMR, for instance, they all come together to form, you know, guidelines collaboratively to address a problem now that is common between all of the sectors. So I suppose the next obvious question is, it seems, I suppose, for somebody who's not familiar with One Health, it seems a bit wishy-washy, if we can put it that way. So for the listeners listening, can we can we answer the concept of whether One Health approaches specific concepts? So when the One Health high-level expert panel, right, was formed in 2021 to advise the FAO, UNEP, WHO, and WHO, right? And now, so basically, you've got now this panel that now will advise the quadripartite, right? And this includes recommendations for research on emerging diseases, threats, and the development of long-term global action plans to avert outbreaks of diseases like H5N1, avian influenza, MERS, Ebola, Zika, and COVID-19 and antimicrobial resistance. So the panel also have a critical role in investigating the impact of human activity on the environment and wildlife habitats and how this drives diseases and threats. Critical areas include food production and distribution, urbanization and infrastructure development, 
international travel and trade, activities that lead to biodiversity loss and climate change, and those that put increased pressure on the natural resource base, all of which can lead to an emergence of zoonotic diseases. So basically, addressing everything that is common to the three sectors. And if you see, the environment plays a huge role and is this huge sort of sector that joins all of us together. So, and very often, when, and I was going to mention it a little bit later on, but very often the environmental sector is the one that gets left behind. There's a lot of emphasis on human health. Obviously, there's a lot of, well, there's emphasis on animal health, but we tend to forget the environment. And the environment is actually the little area or the huge area, should I say, where all of us have, you know, co coexist. That's the common that's ground. That's the common ground. The and that's where now you're going to find the mixing and the, the interaction of everything. Fascinating. And of course, you did mention antimicrobial resistance, which is a pet love of both of us. <laughs> so it, it's obvious then that the, my next question would be, what do we know about antimicrobial resistance and One Health? And we've got to make this relevant and local. So can you give us some context globally and what we know about it in South Africa? So obviously, tackling antimicrobial resistance in a One Health context is something that is growing globally. So more and more, whenever we speak at congresses or anywhere, when you say AMR, there's always one health lagging behind it. So it's a concept that's that's mm -hmm. growing. It's it's working hand to hand, right? And ultimately, tackling, tackling antimicrobial resistance is a sustainable development agenda issue and will be critical in achieving the sustainable development goals. So increasing awareness and understanding of the aspects of antimicrobial use in the agricultural sector and the impact on the environment are necessary in order to address AMR from a One Health perspective. So remember, but we always say that antimicrobial resistance is driven by the use of antibiotics. And we've all come to know that the use of antibiotics is not just in us. Huge amounts of antibiotics are used in humans. And then as a consequence of antibiotic use, there's antibiotic that antibiotics that actually land up or antibiotic residues that land up in the environment that has its consequences there. So therefore, addressing AMR in a sort of health or human health silo is actually going to be mm. futile if you're not going to incorporate the other two sectors. So from a global perspective of addressing AMR in a One Health perspective, we've got the quadripartite that now will dictate you know, or make suggestions or guidelines on how now we globally and locally adopt and adapt certain guidelines that are applicable to our setup. So, for example, the, the objectives are to raise awareness and communicate the importance of the One Health approach in addressing AMR globally, share good policy practices to mitigate the threat of AMR by reducing the use of antimicrobials in agricultural systems and the environment, identify the links and contribution of work on AMR with the sustainable development goals, 
highlight the importance of the four United Nations sister organizations working together, each as an individual and then as a collective to mandate and coordinate efforts and showcase examples that address AMR from one health perspective that are taking place either globally or regionally or countrywide. So basically, you've got this sort of umbrella now that now would would make sort of suggestions and guidelines of which now we need to adopt. So now it's South Africa. And at our level, we've got the South African Antimicrobial Resistance National Strategy Framework, right? And we've got a One Health approach, right, that is mandated from 2017 right up until 2024. And the National AMR Strategy provides a structure for managing AMR. The framework incorporates the One Health approach to addressing AMR in the country itself. And the development of a national antimicrobial resistance strategy framework complements international efforts. And that's a major step in containment. So basically, we take the suggestions that are made. We then would apply it to ourselves locally, and we will adapt accordingly. And if you look at an important part of our framework is that we have got ministerial advisory committee on AMR. And on that committee, we've got representation from all sectors. So we've got representation of the human health sector, the animal health sector, and the environmentalists that now will Mm. seek to address antimicrobial resistance in South Africa in a One Health perspective. Right, got you. So basically, there are platforms in place. There are objectives. We've got a pathway. It's not kind of all haphazard. We've got something that we need to follow and there's a timeline to it, which is which is really important to know. Now, I'm just thinking from the listener who's listening, who might be feeling a bit cynical about the topic and thinking, well, do we have even any actual data available to suggest that antimicrobial resistance is in fact a one health problem, that we've got resistance genes circulating amongst humans, animals, and the environment? Okay, so so there are studies that have been done both at international and local levels that actually show mm-hmm. that, you know what, there is this movement of antibiotic resistance genes um, between humans and animals and the environment being this almost vessel that is also harboring or collecting, if I may say, these resistance genes. And, and one of the studies which I've been involved with, and it was part of my PhD project, is looking at carbapenem resistance genes in a One Health perspective. And we aimed to look at the movement of common carbapenem resistance genes that existed between humans, animals, and the environment. And well, Surprisingly and unsurprisingly, we found we made a couple of interesting findings. And we did find that there were antibiotic resistance genes, identical antibiotic resistance genes that were found in isolates that were circulating in humans and in the environment. And when I say isolates, I mean pathogens and bacteria. And these isolates had plasmids, right, or mobile genetic elements. So mobile genetic elements in plasmids, well, plasmids are mobile genetic elements, actually. They actually now are a vehicle to move these resistance genes around. 
So basically, the resistance genes are not on their own. They are facilitated by the movement of these plasmids. And that's the scary part, because most organisms or pathogens that you know we come across that are multi-drug resistant are able now to take up these plasmids and incorporate them within their DNA and then express it as antibiotic resistance. So that's the scary part where you could have these genes that are lying in the environment and then they could be taken up by a bacteria because they have this plasmid to facilitate, you know, them being taken up. And in my study, we didn't find the antibiotic resistant isolates in the animal side. However, the fact that these genes are found in the environment and animals are in contact with the environment makes it very possible for now bacteria to take up these genes and then infect ex- uh, animals, for example, or colonize animals. And then remember, humans consume animals and, and the animals that were used in my study were actually food producing animals. So there now is the contact. So the contact is one, we consume it. Two, there are humans that actually work on these abattoirs, they work on these farms. So there's that close contact and interaction with the animals. And then, of course, remember, the humans and the animals both share this common space of the environment, whereby these resistance genes are hanging out, if I can use that term. And and just to add to that, that your study was, you know, it wasn't an abattoir in one area, a different environment, and then a different community, that it was, in fact, all in the same district. So it was a community that had an abattoir very nearby, and it was the environmental setting around it that you that you investigated. So very scary. And also th- to think about those abattoir workers going back home after handling these animals and then going back into the community, which could also result in spread, as you say. Exactly, Vin. And, and as you can imagine, you know, the whole aim of this is, as you say, we wanted to sample sectors within the same area, geographical area, because that's what we wanted to show that within the same geographical area, these were the findings. And logistically, it was quite difficult to execute. But if we, you know, plan studies like this, if we carry out surveillance like this in different parts of the country, in different provinces, in different areas of the world, then we almost can get a sense of, you know, what are the circulating multidrug resistant pathogens? What are the circulating associated genes? And at what points now can we intervene as far as managing this is concerned? So it's it's important to carry out surveillance because then you know you have a problem and then you can find solutions to the problem. You can also find the resistance genes that are circulating in perhaps the animal sector that might at some point transition across to humans. So in a sense, it's as you said, surveillance and could be potentially preventive. Exactly. And and when it's pointless doing this once we have a problem, you'd rather do surveillance and catch something before the problem starts, you know, like, for instance, COVID. I mean, the discovery of it now, retrospectively, when we look back, it was something that emanated from animals and stuff. We could do the same rather than doing it now when after the fact, we might as well just carry out surveillance and then have all our sort of ducks in a row and address the problem as we catch it. 
absolutely. So I think on that note, it's it's quite a significant question then to ask how a One Health approach might in fact help address the growing problem of antimicrobial resistance. So we've already mentioned surveillance as one of those components, but is there anything else we should be adding to that? I think what's important then is, you know, before the step of surveillance, because obviously it's, it's a collaborative approach and it can't be just one sector carrying out the surveillance because you've got to carry out the surveillance in animals, you've got to do it in wastewater treatment plants and, you know, the environment and all of that. I think before the surveillance aspect, the awareness and the education of why we're doing this or why we're approaching AMR from a One Health perspective, I think it's still, um, even though it's spoken about, even though it, it it's something that has been brought about many years ago, it's still relatively new. And I think the more and more people understand it from all different levels, the easier it would be to tackle the problem. So education and creating awareness, and we need to invest a lot on that that aspect. So I think that that is very important. And then we'll obviously have the, the surveillance. And then once we have the surveillance, you can then go on to mandating certain policies and implementing certain policies and then monitoring. So those things are important. So because most of our audience is made up of clinicians, practitioners, medical students. I think one of the most important things about this idea of One Health is that it seems like something outside of clinical practice or outside of what somebody is going to need to do or think about when they've got an individual patient in front of them. So I was wondering whether you can maybe offer some guidance or have some suggestions as to how a clinician can have a more One Health-centered approach to patient management. Okay, so when very interesting, you know, Australia, we've come across that they've got general practitioners and veterinarians who are known as One Health practitioners. And basically what they do is that they are able to identify and recognize specific diseases and, and risks basically to human health and one of those being AMR. And they understand these diseases in a One Health context because now they're One Health practitioners. And they understand the dynamics of how the problems arise, you know, from animals to humans and, and then the spread of it. They also identify certain diagnostic tests and, and protocols. So, so basically, I mean, if, if you can imagine this, there's One Health practitioners that look at the health of humans and animals, look at the diseases between them, and then look at specific diagnostic modalities on how they can diagnose and, you know, identify these diseases. And then also they, between themselves, they share, there's a lot of information sharing and there's a lot of experience sharing as well that actually then will make them, if I can use this term, transcend from just being a general practitioner to a now a One Health practitioner because there's a lot of knowledge sharing, there's a lot of teaching, there's a lot of training between them to help them understand the other sector 
and all of the challenges and diseases and everything better and then to you know come across as as one health practitioner so it's certainly a concept that i think the rest of the world can look at following you know so so it's it's definitely something that exists but i think it's something mm-hmm. that uh, we should encourage so it's early days yes and, it's and, early and, yes you know, we need to see more of that yes ideally you'd want every general practitioner to have I don't know, a one health course behind them or a one health diploma to have a better understanding. And just as you were talking, I was thinking about undergraduate medical education. I'm not sure how much one health in fact gets taught and certainly something we need to look at into the future. Yes, I mean when I mean I think in most of our undergrad programs there's no emphasis or there's no talk about one health. I mean there's no specific lecture or anything that I know of that is dedicated to the concept of one health so that that's worthwhile and you know also going back to the clinician's perspective i think it's important that our infectious diseases specialists you know especially are equipped and armed with the knowledge of you know the one health concept and then i think in their even in their training series but we know that there's i mean on that note you're talking about even the infectious diseases fellows needing more training in one health but you know there's there's a certain list of challenges i think that are probably faced and what do you think those challenges might be in terms of having a one health approach for antimicrobial resistance and just infectious diseases in general yes i think it's important for for id to to be one health trained however we all know the the challenges we face we don't have many id specialists to speak of in the country and that's a huge huge constraint on the part of the healthcare system in that most of us have we we don't have the luxury of having an infectious diseases specialist at our hospital and shame we call it a luxury when you do have one when actually it's supposed to be a necessity so you know the 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 one thing is that we train and equip more infectious diseases specialists in the country and obviously that comes at a cost you know the cost of financing id id posts and making more id posts available and training posts available so that's a huge challenge that that we faced with so in as much as i suggest that we should have the one health training given to id specialists that we need to identify or to address the the root cause of the problem and that's a lack of trained infectious diseases specialists and i wish we could wave a magic wand where we could all be in a position to have an infectious diseases specialist at our healthcare facility and that actually would would address a lot of problems when if you if you think about it not just amr but a lot of problems third world problems as well in in our facilities and in our communities and then you know we're talking about id we're talking about amr we're talking about specialists and super specialists but in fact it's it's everybody that needs to know about one health and so you know it comes back to that concept of awareness and so do you have any suggestions specifically about how we can increase the awareness in general for one health amr and one health id and i mean when it's it's something that we've chatted about as as colleagues and as professionals and and you know that i've been chatting to you about this concept of community involvement and 
creating that awareness and creating the, a knowledge base for people within the community. And I honestly feel, you know, like the world came to the party with COVID. You know, we all mm-hmm. learned about sanitizing. We all learned about, you know, wearing off masks. We all learned about hand hygiene. And it took us literally six months or even three months to know that my five-year-old knew exactly how to clean, wash, and sanitize our hands. So I do believe that the, the, the younger generation, you know, meaning the younger the children in the community, if they are exposed to some sort of education related to mm-hmm. just a simple concept of what One Health is, simple concept of what mm-hmm. antibiotic resistance is, it certainly will take us a long way. Because we we addressed COVID in a very positive manner in that we did it across all population levels. So from healthcare practitioners right down to, you know, the, the, the tiniest child who could comprehend what COVID was. So, you know, I'm always saying to myself, you know, can we not do that with AMR? Can we not now also go out into the community, educate children and, and teach them about One Health and AMR? And how this affects, I mean, climate change is a huge thing. And we all know climate change is going to even have consequences on antibiotic resistance because it's, it's you know, it's having an impact on the environment. That's the common vessel. So, yeah, that's, I, I truly believe that, we know, we need to address providing a knowledge base and education to all levels of the population and not just me- medical or healthcare professionals. So I love that you said that, and I love that you brought in the next generation and children, etc. because in fact, we've come to the point in the show where we have a spotlight feature. And for today's episode, I've managed to gather another cute little boy with a very special message for you around One Health. So have a listen. everyone. My name is Jaden. I am eight years old and I live in Johannesburg. Did you know that more than half of all infections that people can get can be spread by animals? All of us love our pets and there are few things that can make us happy as seeing our pet dog run towards us when we get back from school but because children younger than five years can get sick easily experts say that they should avoid touching animals like turtles chicks ducklings frogs and hamsters luckily i am older than five years and i can play with some of these cute animals Yes, Mom, I know you are listening. I will always wash my hands properly with soap and water after touching any animal. Okay, Vin, so this is adorable. And there you go, a typical example of an eight-year-old now who knows and understands the concepts mm-hmm. of hand hygiene, why it's important and the importance of not touching animals at a certain age. So a typical example of educating 
a young child who now is going to go out there and take on the world and teach even adults about the value of hand hygiene. Okay, so well done, Jaden. Any take, quick take-home messages for our listeners, again? Okay, so, you know, as, as I've said, you know, antimicrobial resistance is a one health problem underpinned by complex drivers and behaviors. And this is particularly so in low and middle income countries where the social and systemic factors that actually drive antimicrobial resistance. And as I've mentioned, behavioral change around the use of antimicrobial resistance, educating people. Um, and, you know, I think when you educate someone, then it creates a change in behavior. And then it also leads to people understanding things better. So community engagement within AMR could facilitate AMR behavior change, specifically, I think, in lower middle income countries, because it's also a contextualized approach that will be applicable to us and our communities. So a few, a few sort of interventions, you know, just baseline interventions like Jaden has mentioned, you know, hand hand washing, proper sanitation and water, educating farmers, um, educating children at school, focusing on, on proper water and, and sanitation. And, and if you look at that now, when you focus on those factors, you're actually focusing on addressing AMR in a one health perspective because you're addressing things from different sectors. So the need for engagement of the society, of the whole society, for the prevention and containment of antibiotic resistance, requiring behavioral and organizational changes, ranging from national governments and policymakers to individual patients and the community and society, as suggested by the Global Action Plan, is truly critical. So we address AMR, we address it using small interventions, community interventions, and we address it in a One Health perspective. So we start with small baby steps. And remember, it's the small things that count, especially when you use them as a collective. Absolutely. Again, thank you so much for joining me again today on today's episode of Microbe Mail. It was so amazing to have you back. Vin, thank you so much for having me. Thank you to the listeners who listen on this podcast. Again, Vin, this is a fantastic platform that you have in, in educating, you know, healthcare providers and healthcare practitioners in the community at large. I think you're doing a wonderful job here. And to all the listeners out there, I hope that this has been useful. And thank you to Jaden for that lovely message. And yeah, we'll we'll touch base soon. Take care and all the best. Thanks again. Listeners, what do you think of Microbe Mail? Go ahead and leave us a thumbs up or a review wherever you're listening. And until next time, that's it from me, your Microbe Messenger, and from the entire Microbe Mail team, we will see you again soon with more Contagious Mail.